0: A message comes to us today from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. And it reads like this Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put it on. Is not life more than food? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith." Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, (laughs) for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the blessed word from our Lord.
1: Well, we come this morning to what is probably the most famous passage in Scripture about worry. It is Jesus' own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and in his own teaching, what he talks about here is quite a fascinating uh, thought. And so this morning, I uh, must say to you in my study, I have leaned heavily on D.A. Carson and his work on the Sermon on the Mount. I actually have his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount in front of me, and here's what he has to say. He says, picture three people. The first is happy-go-lucky, cheerful, almost irresponsible person. He rarely gets anything done and never gets anything done on time. He doesn't worry about the next five minutes, let alone tomorrow. Responsibility he wears too lightly. Life is a lark. If he is a Christian, it is very difficult to get him to work faithfully at any task. He probably won't cause any tension by stooping to bitterness or vindictiveness. Everyone knows him as a nice guy. On the other hand, he remains insensitive to the needs and feelings of others and is consistently carefree about the spiritual lostness of millions of men. The second person is almost hyper-responsible. He takes every grief and burden seriously. If there is any trouble, he frets so much over it that he produces outsized ulcers. The state of the economy is a constant weight on his mind. Not only does he worry about tomorrow, he wonders how he'll make it when he retires in 42 years. He may spread the objects of his worry around or uh, he may keep them focused on just a few things. The third person is a balanced and sane young Christian noteworthy for his integrity and disciplined hard work. Married, with two children, he has supported them faithfully while trying to finish his doctorate. With about one year to go, he wakes one night to discover that his wife can't speak and can't move her right side. A brain tumor is discovered, but major surgery proves useless. The doctor tells the young man that the recovery period will be lengthy and will not return his wife to normal strength and mental clarity in any case. In fact, the prognosis is three years, during which time she will become more and more like a vegetable, and then she will die. These three people here, some preacher, use Matthew 6, 25 through 34 as the basis for a long sermon on the wickedness of worry. The preacher says that worry involves distrust in God, and this is shameful. How will each react? And so I realized this morning as I preached that I preach to people who are somewhere along this uh, line. You perhaps are the happy-go-lucky person, or perhaps you're the over-worried person. If you're the happy-go-lucky person, you're loving this series because, hey, you never worry about anything, anytime, time, which forces everybody around you to do all the worrying. All right? And so you're loving this series. You're thinking, this is right down my alley. If you're the very worried person, you're going to come at this series and say, yes, I hear what you're saying, but. Yes, I hear what you're saying, but. Yes, I hear what you're saying, but you don't know how much responsibility I have. And if you're the third person, it is easy for you to hear this. And perhaps there to be bitterness or resentment. As you think, Jerry, you don't know what I'm facing. You don't know what I'm going through. And if you knew what I was going through, I don't think you would speak about worry as you do. My goal is that you will see God in a new light this morning. And i say to my students at Montreat sometimes when the lecture is going to be especially heavy, you better sit up, take notes, right? If you're sleepy, get rid of it. This is one of those sermons. You'll want to jot some things down because I fear that our thinking, since all worry is in the mind and the heart, I fear that our thinking about God is skewed is wrong and as a result our wrong thinking is producing all kinds of unwarranted worry and that if we will begin to think of him rightly that worry will begin to dissipate in our lives I mean that. Carson adds there is a sense in which worry is not only good but its absence is biblically speaking irresponsible. There is a sense in which worry is not only evil, but its presence signifies unbelief and disobedience. So worry, or the lack thereof, it appears, can be sin. So let's look at three arguments Jesus makes for not worrying. Number one, don't worry, a theological argument. A theological argument, therefore... He says, so we look to see why it's there. And when we do, we discover that Jesus has just said, you can't serve God and wealth. All right, since you can't serve God and wealth, let me talk to you a bit about worry. And there were the poorer day laborers who comprised most of Jesus' uh, uh, audience. And no doubt when they heard him say that, their eyes lit up and they looked across the crowd and saw the wealthy Pharisees. They saw the wealthy Sadducees and they thought, oh, that's for them until Jesus takes it all the way down to what you drink, what you eat, and what you wear. So he says, it's possible to have little and still worry. It's possible to have wealth and still worry. It's rather remarkable that a week from today, Lord willing, I will preach under a mango tree in Senegal, Africa. That is their house of worship. We will gather under that tree. I'll preach there to people who have very little. One of our dollars equals 540-some of theirs. 540-some Their kitchen, they will serve us a sumptuous meal Sunday afternoon. And it will be prepared uh, in their outdoor kitchen between two trees, pots and fire built underneath. And yet this sermon says to you and me, Don't worry, though you and I have kitchens that are inside and we have uh, uh, pots to cook in and a stove to cook on and retirement plans. And he says to the Senegalese, don't worry about what you eat, about what you drink, about what you wear. Why? Why? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Say, Jerry, what is the theological argument? Here it is. God feeds birds. That's it. I'm serious. That's Jesus' theological argument for why you and I shouldn't worry. God feeds. Feeds birds. You see, I'm afraid that we have bought into some worldviews that have affected how we think. So, thinking cap on, taking some notes, let's look at the four dominant worldviews today and how you, perhaps without knowing it, have bought them. Number one, open universe. Open universe, look at this little diagram, the G stands for gods, and the open universe believes that whatever your God is, acts, and the universe is uh, everything below the line. And so everybody below the line does things to appease God, hoping that God will respond. So it's a, I please God, God responds, I please God, God responds. That's an open universe view. If you've ever heard of karma, that's it. This is karma. This is if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. So don't make God mad. And there's so many of you without realizing it. And this is how you live every day of your life. You live like this. You are convinced that it is only you and what you do that causes God to react or act in any way in relation to you. It's an open universe view. All right, there's the second view, which is a closed universe. The circle represents the universe in this view, and all of life is inside the circle There is no God in this view, and everything can be explained almost always by science. Science or philosophy can explain everything in life. Just think hard and study long enough, and you'll figure it all out. Atheists find themselves here. Then there is the third view, which is a variation of the second. The third view indeed puts God in the circle. So everything happens in this circle. God is in the circle in the third view. He even created the universe, but sustain it, he does not. Uh, Engaged in it, he is not. We call this either theism or deism. And this is the view that God, yes, created, but is no longer engaged or involved. And then there's the final view. This is the controlled universe. In the controlled universe, everything in the circle represents the universe. God is indeed outside and also inside the circle. He is outside creating, influencing, directing all of life. And he is inside the circle, involved, intricately involved. Not only in this view does he create, he sustains creation. He is a knowable, personal God with whom you can relate, who has emotions like love and anger, who has a personality who wants to engage you at a personal level in life. This God feeds birds. Yes. He loves his creation down to tiny sparrows and swallows. You may find this to be a bit ridiculous. But when I go buy bird feed, every time I do, I go, all right, God, I'm helping you out. That's how I think, God, I'm on your team. You're feeding the birds and I get to help every single time. No lie. Why? Because God feeds birds and Jesus says, if God feeds birds, is he not much more concerned about what it is? You need to eat. All right, so don't worry. That's a theological argument. Number two, don't worry. A logical argument. Don't worry. It is a simple, logical argument. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? All right, so here's the logical argument. Worry cannot accomplish one single solitary thing to add anything to your life, is what Jesus is saying. An article published by Harvard Health in June of last year suggested that worry was connected with intestinal, heart, and respiratory disease. Now, most of Jesus' audience would have been the amarets. They are the day laborers. They show up every day looking for work. And so they come to a vineyard owner and they say, I need work. And the vineyard owner hires that day laborer for that day. The laborer works all day, gets paid at the end of the day. That's how they roll. Day laborers. They still exist all over the world today. Not so much in our economy. There are a few in the American economy, but they're in developing countries everywhere. Day laborers. Now you talk about dependence, right? Right. You hope to get work that day. You hope to get food, uh, money by the end of the day. And at the end of the day, you buy your food for the next day. This is who Jesus is talking to. And he's saying to them, hey, worry won't get you a job tomorrow. It won't do that. Worry won't put food on your table. Worry can't add a single hour to their life. All right, so I did the math because I'm a nerd and that's what we do. If you consider the average lifespan of 70 years, which was, incidentally, the average in uh, Jesus' day, if you look at the average lifespan of 70 years, there are 613,200 hours of life. Jesus says that if you worry, you can add this amount of percentage to your life. All right, so that's a bunch of zeros and a 163. Do you know what that means? Wow, have we not wasted a lot of time We can't even add that percentage to our life by worry? Logically, don't worry. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Number three, don't worry, a philosophical argument. So we have a theological argument, God feeds the birds. We have a logical argument. It doesn't work. We have a philosophical argument. Look at this. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you or you have little faith? All right, so grass was used for fuel. This word lilies is probably way too advanced a to, uh, translation. It simply means wildflowers. So, not only does God feed birds, but He dresses up wildflowers, He chooses the colors, He, he, he puts the flower on the, the, the stem or the stalk. So what is the philosophical argument? It was one used uh, commonly by philosophers before and after Jesus' time. It is still used today. It is called a lesser to greater or greater to lesser argument. All right, so what what is the argument? If uh, wildflowers being so little, God clothes, and you being so much more valuable, will he not also clothe you? Jesus, in this one conversation about worry, makes a theological argument, makes a logical argument, and makes a philosophical argument. That leads us right to Romans eight thirty two, where Paul does the same thing. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What is Paul saying? If God would give his own son, who is his best and his only. All right, so he's going to give his best and his only. If he'll give his own son, will he not also with Christ give us everything else we need? Say, so Jerry, how, how does that work? What do you mean? Well, uh, we don't have a kid in college right now. We're in the period, right? Right? All parents who have had kids in college know how this feels, right? You're in between the we-don't-get-a-bill period, right, until our son, who's a, a freshman in high school, hits college. So uh, we, we paid monthly when Hannah was in school, doled out, you know, quite a bit of money every single month to pay her way through school. And so could you imagine we've, we've, we've made that hefty payment, and Hannah calls us up and says, uh, uh, Dad, Mom, Mom, uh, Uh, I need uh, a book that costs 30 bucks. And we say, 30 bucks? We've just paid 10 grand for school. We're not giving you $30. Does that make any sense? No. No, if we'll pay her tuition, we'll also buy her a book. All right, so the reason worry should lead every time to the cross is that if on the cross God would provide his son to meet the greatest need we would ever have, will he not also meet every other need that's less than that? If he would meet our greatest need, which is uh, uh, the the consequences of sin, which is uh, ultimately separation from him for eternity, if he would not forgive our sins and bring us into him like the song we just sang when death was arrested, our our ashes of life, and if he will take those ashes and turn those into something beautiful, will he not also then add to our lives every other thing we need that's that's the point it's a philosophical argument that jesus makes here that paul echoes later in romans 8 so how do you how do you respond therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows you need them all There's fascinating wordplay. I love scripture. All God's word is all God's word and it's all good. Even the tiny words. Seek. So there's the word seek and then there's the word seek after in this passage. Did you notice that? Uh, Verse 33 says but seek. But verse 32 says the Gentiles seek after. So how does seek after become seek after? You put a tiny little prefix in front of it. Epi. It means over and above. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the difference between Gentiles and Christ followers is that Gentiles crave stuff, and Christ followers seek me. They seek after food. They seek after clothes. They seek after something to drink. Meaning they're obsessed with it. They're consumed by it. That's that's the difference. You see, when we go to Senegal next week and, and we camp out in a village with no electricity, the difference between me and them is not how much money I make and how much Pastor Cherna makes. No. As a matter of fact, it, it will blow your mind to know that our church sends $250 a month to this village, to this pastor, and that feeds his wife and nine children and also serves small ministry projects. Just $250 a month. The, the issue is not what he has and what I have. The issue is, am I seeking after what I don't have? And is he seeking after what he doesn't have? Now, the definition of that is idolatry. Right? Addiction. Obsession. The Gentiles do that. But what do we do? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We seek first the kingdom of God. That's what we do. We don't have to crave it. We don't have to be obsessed. Why? Because it's not elusive. It's not like, oh, give me that. I'm afraid I'm not going to get it. No, no, you got it. All you got to do is seek. For the rest of your life, you seek. For the rest of your life, there will be things that compete, and you will need to seek disciples or seekers. All right, so we're going to close on this note. There's so many singles in this room. And I love you. I love your stand. I love your faithfulness. I love your love for the Lord. We're going to hear from one on this I Am Second video named Mariah Peters. You may have heard her sing, but listen to her story of seeking.